0: Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Okay, hey, y'all, it's the last Sunday before we start meeting in person oh my god y'all it has been a long time coming everybody pray that <laughs> there's not going to be any rain um, because next week is that means that it's outdoor service so um yeah i'm so excited to see y'all again i can't believe it i can't believe it But we are going to be able to gather together. So please keep our church in your prayers. In the meantime, the word of God don't stop for nobody. The word of God don't stop for nothing. So we are going to continue in our sermon series through Daniel. We are reading through Daniel chapter 3. We are reading through Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel is... Jesus Christ, my love. Daniel is after Ezekiel, before Hosea. Man, I've never noticed. <laughs> it's after Ezekiel and before Hosea. Well, anyway, Daniel chapter 3. Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 3. We are going to be reading from the middle. We're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Obviously, the sermon has to do with the whole chapter, but we are reading today Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. I'm reading from the ESV. If y'all are reading from the NRSV, NIV, I think all of it is fine. Uh, Just try to track with me, okay? So we are not gathered together. One of the last days that we are not going to be gathered together, at least in the foreseeable future. But even though we are not rising together, we hold God's word with the reverence that it deserves. And so right now is the time to pay attention. If y'all are distracted, right now is the time to be less distracted now. us time to pay attention to god's holy and perfect word this is the word of the lord then nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that shadrach meshach and abednego be brought so they brought these men before the king nebuchadnezzar answered and said to him is it true o shadrach meshach and abednego that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image i have set up now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, backpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O okay. king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance is the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had had, had not had any power over the bodies of those men, The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree." Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? you are so, so good to us. Abba, you are so kind. So gracious. So merciful. Abba, you are so wonderful. Abba, we give you glory in this time. Abba, we pray that you would be with us. Abba, that you would Continue to love your people and bind your people together in unity. Abba, would you be with us as your sermon is being preached? Abba, we pray for hearts that are willing to hear you, hearts that are willing to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see how you are with us in the fire. Eyes to see who the power that you have, Abba, that we would come clean before you today. Last week, we prayed for convictions to arise. We pray for wisdom, God. Now we pray for your presence. Your presence with us. That no matter what we are going through, no matter what our fire might be, Lord, that we would remember that you are with us. Lord, we want to lift up the people who are losing family members and have lost lives in the crash in Miami. Lord, we just want to lift up your people to you. So many beloved children of the Most High. Father God, that have fallen victim to a horrible situation out of neglect. And yet we believe that you are a God that is greater than our suffering, that you are a God that extends far past that, that you are a God that protects, you are a God that defends. Uh, Abba, we just pray for the hearts of those who are hurting, Lord, we pray that you would be magnified and in their hearts, God, that they would truly be able to see you. Lord, we pray for those who have lost lives, God, that they would be reunited with you. God, we just pray, Lord, that you would be with this situation, Father God, that you would would bless it, that you would keep it. Uh, Father God, that you would contain it, that you would bring healing to those who need healing, that you would bring comfort to those who need comfort, Jesus. We just want to give you glory. We believe in you. Against all odds, against all circumstances, Lord, we believe in you. And so we want to worship you right now. Help us to see you for who you are and not what you can do for us. Help us to build relationship with you, God, right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to be um, doing a couple of things right now. Um. Not doing a couple of things. My brain is a little fried. Please bear with me. We're just going to talk a little bit about the structure of this, and we're going to jump right into this passage because Daniel 3 is a lot. Daniel 3 is a lot. So we're, obviously a lot of us, we have heard this passage before. We have heard, um, you know, things come and go in this passage, maybe at a retreat, maybe at a revival, maybe another service, and most likely y'all have all read it in a Sunday school book. If you have not done all three, that takes a lot of avoiding <laughs> to not ever hear this story. So if that—if this is your first time hearing this story, more power to you. Um, but for a lot of us, we have most likely heard this story in some capacity, right? Um, and the structure of this, obviously I haven't read the whole chapter, but the structure of this is the first thing is Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold, right? We see that in the first seven verses is the gold thing that he establishes. The second thing is the accusation made against the three friends that they won't bow to that thing. The confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar saying, bow to us, Um, the the miraculous deliverance of these three friends and the fact that Nebuchadnezzar worships God at the end. And so we see these five nice structure, nice nicely structured story within, within the book of Daniel. Now at this point, I want to introduce us to the, to the, to the title, man, my brain is so fried. Uh, I want to introduce us to the passage title. Um, and so the title of this sermon is the Lord is in the fire. The Lord is in the fire. The main idea is that the Lord is present and powerful. Even in our pain, the Lord is present and powerful, even in our pain. Okay. And so there is this structure this very, very well-known story. And it's built thus it's built accordingly. Like so, so let's just jump right into it. You know, the passage starts off with, um, a sentence about how Nebuchadnezzar has built a huge golden statue. And he has insisted that everyone present bow down and worship it. Right? So we can talk a little bit about this statue. I don't want to talk too much about it. But the first thing is, is that it's gold. People are not sure if it's solid gold or gold plated. But judging by the fact that it's freaking 90 feet or something like that, I think it is gold plated. Um, <laughs> that's, not, that's not just my personal wisdom. I, that's actual like historical commentary. It's most likely gold plated. Um, and um, it's huge. And it's a little bit grotesque because of how big it is. You know, have you ever seen like a 7-foot tall person? I don't know about y'all. I mean, there's more power to people who are 7 feet. Ain't nobody saying nothing about people who are 7 feet. Yo, we we I like look up to people literally figuratively to people who are 7 feet. But if you see like people who grow past 7 foot, 8 foot, um often it it's not it's not necessarily natural and when when things are grown blown up so big we might feel like the the size of the hands the size of the feet the size of the bones it's almost like not that it's dehuman but it's it it, it almost seems a little at like superhuman right almost seems a little ab not natural unnatural right and if you can imagine this is an idol that has blown up 90 feet so it's not normal looking it's There's this understanding that it's like grotesque. I'm not saying big people, tall people are grotesque. Do not say that I'm saying that. I'm saying the idol. Ain't nobody know anybody who's 90 feet. You let me know when you find somebody who's 90 feet, okay? But this is 90 feet and obviously it's built in antiquity. So this is pre-Jesus. So if you can imagine like, it's just a very interesting time to build something that big, takes that much more effort, it's gold plated. Why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? The word Nebuchadnezzar is too long, so I'm going to call him Neb, all right? Why does King Neb do this, okay? King Neb does this. (laughs) King Neb does this because he is trying to exert power over a diverse empire. If you know anything, the empire that King Nebuchadnezzar rules over, he reigns over, it has so many different peoples of which the Babylonians or the Chaldeans and the Israelites are a part of. And so there are a lot of different cultures, a lot of different types of people. And so God, not God, um, King Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of different surface area to cover. And that might mean that he might get insecure about his power. It does show that King Nebuchadnezzar is insecure about his authority over his vast kingdom. And so he tries to exert this power over his empire by building a gold-plated huge idol Another thing about polytheism is that idols in that time, when you build an idol, it's often that you build it of a God. It's not very often that you build it of a person, but you build it of a God, especially when it's that big. And the the significance of building a physical thing that looks like a God is to make a God visible. And so the, the understanding was that when you built an idol, you are adding physical qualities to God. And you're making that God visible. Now, that sounds like something that we have all wrestled with, not being able to see God. So the way that other religions have dealt with this is actually to build an image of God. And so that's the significance of an idol. That's the significance of how big it is, why Nebuchadnezzar builds it. And once he builds it, he has a mandate that everybody bow to it. That's how we know that Nebuchadnezzar is actually trying to exert power. He also mandates that everybody bow to it. Um, and the re- repetition of the language, cause I didn't read it, but that first 12 verses right before verse 13, it's all about, you know, the circumstances leading up to these three friends, obviously not bowing to this God. There's a lot of repetition, a lot of language. And the narrator creates a scenario here where conformity, right? Conforming to this mandate is normal and disobedience is unthinkable conformity to this mandate, to bow to this God, is normal and disobedience is unthinkable. Now you might be wondering, this doesn't sound like, like religious freedom. I feel like a lot of people would have been against this, right? Actually, in polytheistic religions, it's okay to be able to acknowledge a God. All gods. Like polytheism has this notion that you can acknowledge all gods. That's why, you know, when people re- like people go on missions... It's really dangerous when you go on missions without actually understanding the nature of polytheism because a lot of people will seem like they're you know, converting to Christianity, but they're, what they're doing is they're actually worshiping another god because you can have multiple, and all gods are valid in polytheism. So you can acknowledge this god even if you don't naturally worship him, even if this god is not your god, you can still worship that god. You can still acknowledge that that god exists because polytheism works that way. And so actually there are very little people in this kingdom that would have been against uh, this mandate or that it would have ha- that it would have like hurt the only people group that this would have hurt are the Jews. And so when something like this is built, um, it's partially because when, when a mandate to worship is built, it's not often targeted towards the polytheistic people, but it's targeted towards the monotheistic people, right? Where, um, it will, you will have to break yourself in order to follow this. And so we see here that this is quite targeted. It's a quite targeted mandate. It's a very very insecure like it's I don't know how to say this in a PG-13 way. So let me think about this. It's like just you know when somebody you know like that that bully energy where like uh a big like a like a like a really really like for example for like like a jock, right, has um a lot of insecurities internally and so maybe we'll see like i don't want to actually i don't want to build that stereotype of, of a of a of a job just a person any person any person can be like that, right? Where when they're insecure, so insecure about their insides that they need to exert power and control over other people's lives and subjugate other people uh, to taunting or to in order to have control over the social situation because that's how insecure they are internally, right? And there's this like profound insecurity that arises from Nebuchadnezzar's action here um, that we see now. Daniel's friends. Are the so Daniel is not in this chapter. This book is titled Daniel. This is a very like well-known passage, but Daniel is actually not in this. This is about Daniel's three friends, right? And Daniel's three friends, they could have gotten away with it, but somebody tattled on them. Who? Who tattled on them? It was some astrologers who hated to see these boys and these foreigners go ahead of them. So we see here that there's a lot of court conflict here, a lot of politics that have come into play where because of the way that their ranks were elevated because of the dream and the interpretation of dreams of Daniel, uh, people were jealous of them and this is how their jealousy came out. Their inability to bow was tattled on and Daniel was not present for this. So we see here like things are twisting out of proportion, right? It's like a conflict, between family or coworkers, or maybe a conflict within the workplace, or maybe conflict within a sports team, in a classroom, like any kind of situation where there are power dynamics, we might see that there are always going to be people that just as much as there are people that love you, there might also be people that try to harm you or, or spread nasty things, right? What For whatever reason, right? That I'm not vilifying one action over the other. We are all sinners under under God's grace and mercy, but there are situations where people's plans or maybe reputations, they are sabotaged. I don't understand why, but it's to the point where this is such a common phenomenon to the point where there are, there are laws about defamation, right, dedicated to this particular way of ruining somebody's life. And we see here that somebody is trying to sabotage these people, these three friends. Um, and so this all hits ahead we see in the language here that it gets more and more intense as as the line as the language continues to go up and then there's a confrontation between king Nebuchadnezzar and these three friends right and we see the peak of Nebuchadnezzar's insecurity in verse 15 when he says what god will be able to rescue you from my hand he threatens he gives an ultimatum of life and death and he says And I will throw you, if you don't bow, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. And at that point, what God is going to rescue you? It's this like cockiness that is like really, really what it displays is that inner insecurity, right? He's, he's scared Nebuchadnezzar for whatever reason, maybe because of the dream, not sure why, but he, here we see that Nebuchadnezzar feels the need to display, hyper display his, his strength. In order to make up for something, and 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 we see that it's at least at least in the book of Daniel, not it's not as visible here, but in the book of Daniel we see that astrologers and wise men have actually gone along with this pattern of Nebuchadnezzar. They've always kind of implicitly um, mentioned how what God, how the gods themselves can't do anything to harm Nebuchadnezzar. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream that nobody could interpret, they were like, "Well, who can talk to the gods but you, King Nebuchadnezzar?" It's it was it's like this gassing up of power and this gassing up of authority, specifically in the context of religion, um, where we see Nebuchadnezzar's insecurity here. Um, and then this is how the three friends react. If we are th- the first thing that they say is, "We don't need to talk to you about this." So imagine, imagine like you're a teacher, right? And you're in a classroom full of kids. And you're like, hey, did you do your homework? At that point, what would you say? Yes, no, maybe, right? Yes, no, maybe. Even maybe, that's being fresh, right? But imagine a kid looked up right at you and said, I don't need to answer you. You'd be like, oh my God, I don't know. I just triggered myself as a previous educator. I'll be like, what did you say to me? go outside. I'll talk to you outside, right? Like, I'm not, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even, uh-uh, not in my classroom. There's no, there's no read. That's, first of all, it's unnecessary. It is unnecessary to be rude to a teacher who is doing their job and asking you about their, about your freaking homework, all right? It's, it's their job, okay? N- number two, it's just unnecessary. Number three, what, what the hell, man? What the hell? Uh, and so we we see, we see this freshness in the language of these three friends that is quite ridiculous. I don't know how else to say it, but it is quite ridiculous. Um, this prideful reaction, and they go, okay, well, we don't need to answer you. And they say, you know, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is going to be able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O okay. king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, okay, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. How would you describe that? Re- I mean, like, yes, right? Yes, I'm all about that energy, for sure. But, like, how would you describe? How would you describe that statement? Would you ever talk like that to your parents? Oh, my Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I can be pretty disrespectful to my mom sometimes. I'm pretty, I can be pretty dumb, you know? I can be pretty disrespectful sometimes. But God help me. God help me if I talk to my mama like this. God help me. I will not have any hair on my head no more. I will walk into that next Sunday service bald. I will be bald. I will just be bald. I will be bald, okay? Like, man, you ain't even know You ain't even know, bro. You ain't even know. So, like, this is a lot. This is a lot. In general, even to, like, somebody, any person that has authority in your life, it's a lot. But to the king, this is a lot. This is a lot. So, I asked you guys, how would you describe this answer? Some of y'all might be thinking disrespectful. Some of y'all might be thinking fresh. Some of y'all might be thinking bold. I think it's stupid. (laughs) I think it's stupid. Not because I think that their faith is stupid, but because I think my 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 thought process is there are always better ways to say things my god and you know what you know homie you know like bro like come on like come on seriously come on and um it's just really like it's a lot it's a lot it's really like you can tell they're young you can tell they're young by the way they're talking um so yeah stupid maybe um But even all of that aside, all of that fresh attitude aside, yo, like snap, all of that snap aside, there is a level of courage that is written in, a a level of theological courage that is written into their answer um, that's worth exploring a little bit, right? It's like, it's not, it's, you have to, you have to understand, they're not being hopeful that God will save them. There's no hope that is identifiable here. It's not about hope, but it's about it's a matter of worship. It's a matter of priority, and it's a matter of meaning. They're not saying our God is gonna save us. Ha ha ha! That's not what they're saying here. They're saying this is who my God is. This is why I'm not bowing you. and I don't gotta answer you about that because that's between me and God yeah okay like throw me in my God has the capacity to save me but even if he does not I am not bowing to that thing they say it says here in scripture that the face of the king changed and another way of saying it is his attitude changed, but literally his face changed. He got pissed, like pissed. So he ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times in normal capacity. A few brave men tied these people up in clothing because clothing will burn. It will catch fire. And they throw this guy, these three men into the furnace. The soldiers that are throwing them into the furnace die because of exposure to extreme heat. We see there's a guy named Frankel. Frankl. Okay. He's a survivor of German, German death camps, and he's no stranger to courage in the face of danger of death. He's a philosopher. He says here about these three friends as well as about his own life he says, He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. There's this sense of victory. And this sense of unwavering strength that speaks not to them, but to God. Like their confidence. It's this unwavering confidence in life that comes not from the people themselves, but from the person of God. Um, And they bear witness to the fact that death does not defeat them. Now, some of y'all might wonder, you know, why did they think that, why did they not think that God would save them? Like, do they not have enough faith? Can God be unable to deliver? Like, was this, because the three friends, even as they survived, they know that other people have not, right? And it's, it's, do they think that God was unable to deliver? Was it because these others did not have the faith and they did, and that's why they were delivered? It's. This is not about our judgment of whom God chooses and what God does. To be clear, they are not making statements about what they predict God will do. If you remember from last week, when you, try, when you think you know God, when you make assumptions about God and you think you know him, that's when you get tripped up. Right? Wisdom comes from a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to hear somebody unless you've been hearing them, mm-hmm. right, and we have come up with our own ways of thinking about God, our own things that we have come to conclusions about God conclusions about in regards to God um, that might you know really lead to our downfall in our faith when poop hits the fan mm-hmm. right um but this is not about what God has chosen or what God has not. This is not about how God, in his unfathomable wisdom, did not choose to save some and choose to save some. This is not, God God is not a God that, God is not like that, okay? God's love extends far past that. He extends, he overextends, bends over backwards to save us, okay? And so this, this is not a theological statement about what God chooses or chooses not to do. Do you know what you're going to choose to eat this next meal? My my honest for those of us who like really like to get into the nitty-gritty of what God would choose and what God wouldn't, I think it's valid to have theological questions about you know, does God, what is justice to God? Like, does God have volition? Like what, all of these things I think are really important things. But there's a certain point where we get a little prideful about what we think God should and should not choose. My honest, practical answer to, to that would be, you don't even know everything that you're going to choose. Why don't you uh, figure out what you're going to choose first? Just like a, that's not a. Statement of like, don't think about your theology. Please critically work on your theology, but just practically, when we tr- when we get when we get there, um, I would say like, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, do you know all of your decisions? I don't. So I'm not gonna be thinking about what God chooses and doesn't choose because I got to think about what 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 I got to choose and what God wants me to do, and that's I that's my limit. That's my limit. You know, that's our human limit. Um, so. This is not a statement about what they think God will do and won't do. This is, the sta- this is a resounding statement that no matter the, what the result, deliverance, or death, they will not give into the evil powers of the world. They will stay faithful to God. Some of us might think that that is bold. Some of us might think that that is brash. Some of us might think that, that is dumb. For those of you guys who think that that is dumb, I understand. It sounds dumb. But remember, these men are very capable, very wise, very apt men. As much as when we read them, it sounds dumb. We've also got to humble ourselves a little bit and remember, these men are no different from us. Probably, these men are most likely smarter than a lot of us, right? What is it about God that makes this these smart men choose him over bowing, even to the point of death. What is it about God that they have seen? Anyways, the rest is history. King Nebuchadnezzar has a little window. So like the way that the furnace works is you, get, you actually get plopped in from the top. You get plopped in from the top. So you open it, you get plopped in from the top. That's why the men burn because, like, the flame, you know, can spill out and it, it and the soldiers die. Um, but the young, the three young men, they are bound. They get plopped in, and then King Nebuchadnezzar has this like window that he can see in with, and he gets startled, and he gets up and he's like, "What the hell is going on in there?" Because what he sees is the three men unbound with another glowing man talking and walking around like the fire is my living room. And he's like, what the heck is going on there? Does anybody else see? Right? Get out, come out, come out of the fire, come out of the fire. They get out. Not even a singe they don't even smell like fire what can we apply from this passage the first thing that we can apply is that God is a God of power that God is a God that genuinely Has real material scientific power, but we don't want to focus on that right now. The reason why we don't want to focus on that right now is because what I've been convicted to bring before y'all today is about the heart of Nebuchadnezzar and the heart of these three friends. In another sermon, with another focus, we might be talking about different things. But the first thing I want to address is idol worship and application. We might think that this 90 foot golden statue is ridiculous and it sounds a little ridiculous right but we see here that Nebuchadnezzar's real idol was not actually the 90 foot statue but it was his authority what he cared about wasn't a 90 foot statue it wasn't genuine worship to the god what he cared about was that everybody followed him That everybody listen to him. Imagine going through all that trouble to build such a big idol just so that he can command people to bow to it. In idol worship, and we see here, in idol worship, a person takes a, a bit of created matter and say, you are the most important thing to me in the world. You have all the power and the wisdom. I'm going to say that one more time because if somebody's got to write that down, they've got to write that down. In idol worship, a person takes a bit of created matter and says, you are the most important thing to me in the world. You have all the power and the wisdom. I'm going to say that one more time. In idol worship, a person takes a bit of created matter and says, You are the most important thing to me in the world. Who can relate? I can. What does that mean for you? What is the created matter in your life that you think is the most important thing to you in the world? Is it a relationship? Is it clarity? Is it your career? Is it your future? Is it your family? Is it your friends? Is it happiness? Anything that isn't the creator is creation. When you take creation, even the things that you have created, like relationships, unhealthy soul ties, those things are things that you create. It's not just like a piece of writing that you invest into. It's not just like a career path that you invest into. Even relation, like intimacy is something that people create. Compassion is something that people create. Bonds are something that... People create. Pressure. Is something that people create. Anxiety. Is something that people create. Priorities. Are something that people create. Perceptions. Something that people create. Sometimes. Our idols. Are the things that we have built up. In our own lives. I have to make it in this field. I have to make sure this is going to work out. I have to make sure I don't lose this. If there is something that if you lost today you would deteriorate and you would break and that thing isn't God you need to give pause to that. And everyone is in danger of that including me. I can I have, in my in my time, even being pastor, I have had to break before the Lord because ministry even became an idol. My relationship with God became an idol over God. What God can do for me became an idol over God. <laughs> Human hearts are idol-making factories. This is something that we've all said and we've all heard. But when we really get into the practical nitty gritty of how much we literally just churn out idols because of how we attach importance and significance into the things that we have concocted, our own pressure to be at a particular place by this particular time, our own pressure to succeed in a particular way, at the end of the day, your idol is yourself. Your will, your way, your desire. These are idols. When they, these are not, all of these things, these are these things are alone, they're not bad things. I wanna clarify, please continue to make friendships, relationships. A career path is not the devil. Your family is wonderful. make babies do your thing right those are wonderful wonderful things they are gifts but gifts become poison to our souls when they take the place of God you might feel like Jane Doe talks about this once a month I have no idea why this is brought up once a month, okay? I'm not the one who calls the shots. I'm not the one who chooses the passages. The Lord is the one to order me to say something and direct my eyes to what the passage is saying, right? And and I want to be clear here that I think we just have an idolatry problem, but I don't think that that is a North Boston thing. I think that's just a human thing. Um, it's just something that we often forget about because we put meaning into everything. When somebody says, I love you, to you, you could put meaning in that I love you and then idolize it. Like, anything becomes an idol. When someone says to me, you're my friend, that can be an idol. When someone says, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, that can be an idol. Everything can be an idol because the definition of an idol is when you put creation over creator. When you take a created thing and you say say to that created matter, you are the most important thing to me in the world. And that created matter is not just something that is physical. But idolatry, if you have a hard time identifying how to, how to break away from these idols, let me give you a little hint. Idolatry comes from a sense of control and a sense of insecurity. Idolatry comes when we are unhealthy in our security, when we are insecure, when we seek control. The reason why we have idols, the reason why we get insecure about people and about our future and about things is because we lack security and therefore desire control. Put it another way, we're afraid to lose it. When you want something so bad. But that thing feels like it's going slip to out, slip out of your fingers. You feel like you could lose it at any point. There's no security in it. But you're not willing to let that thing go. That's when idolatry starts. That might be... Even something so simple that I'm, I'm being so, to be fair, so forthcoming with you. That might be something so simple as literally what you want to do. I say it all the time. I do what I want. If you feel like you're in a situation because of family, because of the circumstances that you're in, because of the life stage that you're in, you don't you don't have the mobility or the security or the stability to do what you want. Maybe you're the type of person to be a pushover and you have a hard time doing what you want. You have a hard time listening to yourself over the voice of other people. And you feel like you don't have a lot of security over, over yourself and what you know about yourself and who you are and what you want. So you grip it tighter. Who am I? I'm going to figure myself out. I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm going to do what I want. Then it becomes an idol. Hell, even your insecurity can become idols. So saying that sometimes pain is the most consistent friend. And God's like, hey, give that thing to me. You're like, I don't believe that people can love me, Lord. He's like, hey, I love you. And I'm putting people in your life that will love you right now. Give this thing to me. And you're like, no, God, I don't, I don't know if people can love me. Like, I know what you're saying. And it looks too good to be true. But this is the thing that has held true for me. So I'm going to hold on to what I've seen more than I'm going to hold on to your truth what you say, then your insecurity becomes an idol. Maybe it is your view of life, your worldview that is your idol. For example, maybe there is a relationship that needs mending or uh, you've like taken an off road. Like, you know, sometimes people do the whole like four years in college, Right out do 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 work or grad get a family by 28 right but maybe your life has not been like that maybe you hope that your life would be like that but your life has not been like that for some of our younger folk maybe it's that you expected your grades to be here and you to be here and you to have these extracurriculars be this set for your future but life has not been that way You thought you would have this friendship forever. Life has not been kind to your friendship. You started dating a boy. You thought he was going to be forever. And life has not been so kind to your relationship. Sometimes, God, in those moments of pain, In those moments of trial, in those moments of fire, sometimes when we are in our own fires, God extends himself to us and says, hey, I'm here. We are so stuck in our own pain and in our own experiences that we are unwilling to give our perspective to God, to let God influence the way we see the world the way we see people the way we understand what he can or cannot do we hold on to things hey i'll be very honest with y'all like i'm not a very i'm not a perfect person at all and Whenever people say things to me like, oh, like, I look up to you, I get, like, mm, mm, like, great, like, I'm so glad I could be there for you and I love you, but, like, please do not follow my example. I don't know what to say other than, other than do not follow my example. But if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that sometimes anything, we hold on to everything. And when you let that go, Like You already know what it feels like to hold on to those things, and they they don't feel all too great. Sometimes it's suffocating. Maybe you'll develop anxiety about people. Maybe you'll develop anxiety about your future. Maybe you'll develop anxiety about the things that you've been holding on to, and then you'll start to let these things go. Your closest relationships, your family your priorities your future you'll start to let that go because it's too now it's too anxious and you're just left alone and it's just this like non-stop situation where the pressures and the stress really get you to a point where you crumble anything can be an idol but sometimes god walks into our fire and he says give it to me When was the last time any of the way that you see things was influenced by what I have said? Anything can mean idle. And letting go is not to live namaste in a world like way far away in the middle of a desert eating locusts and honey. I'm not telling you to be John the Baptist, okay? Like, When God is in his proper place, the throne of your heart, everything else will fall into their respective proper places as well. I don't even know how to tell you how relevant... This sermon is for my life right now. But pastor aside and word aside, I really feel it in my Holy, I really feel it in my spirit, person to person. Be open handed about the idols that you have in your life. Last but not least, in spite of current appearances, God is in control. In spite of what you can see, God is in control. That sounds like encouragement. And the whole, I feel this, like this is, these two things, this thing about idolatry and this thing about, you know, God being in control. Those were the two things that were really, really hit with while sermon prepping. Because in spite of what you see, God is in control. That's not just a word of encouragement. It's a word of encouragement when you have something that you want to do but you're losing control of it and then you hear God is in control, he's got you, that sounds encouraging. Because you want what's in your hand so bad. But the fact that in spite of what you see, God is in control, that's a scarier statement than you think. What does it mean that God, an all-powerful God that loves you crazily is in control? over your own sense of control, over your own circumstances, the things that you can see. What does that mean for you? Is that comforting? Is that convicting? Does that lead you to repent? Does that lead you to grieve? Does that lead you to accept? The fact that an all-powerful God is in control right now, our God is in control right now, past what you can see, Does that make you repent of the ways that you've been holding on? Does that convict you with the reality that this life is God's? Does that give you comfort because you have been trying to look at God and follow God for a while, but you just feel like everything is crashing? Maybe it's all three. But it's a strong statement. Even though my world might flip upside down, Even though I might lose much, lose the things that I've been holding on to, the things that I wanted so bad, even if they weren't always good for me. Even though everything might flip and I might not know what the hell is going on with my life. Even though there might be pain, grief, deep, deep loss. Even though there might be animosity and it might feel like everyone around you is trying to get you. Even though Nothing is stable. And everything is uprooted. And everything is slipping through your fingers. The Lord is with you in that fire. And he's seeing something through. You might not like what he's seeing through because you are trying your stinking best to not have those things slip through your fingers. Let me tell you something about God. The reason why it's okay to let go of the things that are slipping through your fingers is because there is a trust that God knows better than you, about you. So even as you hold on to things, even as you grip things tightly, and even even if there's a lot of pain that comes along with that, you can let go of anything and everything as the Lord gives and takes away because he loves you. he's got you and he is your God and then at that point there's no worldview no relationship no priority no dream hope that will dig you deeper than the Lord see joy is a buoyancy over circumstances. You can have joy in the midst of sorrow. You can have joy in the midst of frustration. You can have joy in the midst of deep loss. You can actually have those things. And that joy becomes your strength. When everything is good, it's just joy. But joy turns into strength. The fire, because no matter what you lose, no matter what you gain, God is with you. He will never forsake you. Even if we don't know what tomorrow will bring, we hold fast to the Lord as He heals us as he renews us, as he gives us strength. The very last thing, very last thing, is that God did not take these three men out of the fire. Oftentimes when we go through fire, when we go through trial, when we go through testing, when we go through refinement, because refinement happens in fire as well as the things that we really love that are not for us, they burn away. The things that we hold on to that are not good for us, or even good things that are not necessarily idols, but just need to go away, they go away. Fire has so many implications, a fire of purification, fire of life a fire of death a fire of rebirth so many implications in fire but in the midst of these three boys going into the fire jesus does not take them out of it like we so ask him to do like i said remember praying for relief is not faith jesus does not take them out of that fire he goes into it with them and he protects them from being burned we see here a God of protection we see here a God of protection an empathetic God that does not sit away from afar and just wishes our sufferings away or wills are suffering away but leaves his station to come all the way down and sit with you and have his arms around you so that even as you're learning, even as you are burning that you will not be scorched so you will come out of it unscathed and that might be painful because just because you come out of it unscathed doesn't mean that the things you're holding on (laughs) to will come out of it unscathed. Your fear of the future, your your fears of failure, your fear of losing things, your fear of being left alone, these things, they might burn. You will feel them. And they will burn away. but God is doing a good thing in you. And it takes faith that he loves you beyond what you know about yourself. What does that mean for your life? For me, it is really painful to give this sermon right now because I'm like literally, I'm literally sweating. and so I, w- I want you to know, like, person to person, I feel you if that's you. If there are things that God is burning on, I feel that. I feel you. But in my brokenness and in my weakness, I can guarantee you something. Because I've had practice, just a little bit more practice with this, and I will tell you, it's okay if they burn away. It's okay if the Lord takes things away because he will fill what is burned away. And often, the fears and the insecurities and the things that you're holding on to and the way that you're viewing the world that is dictated off of your experiences and your fears of security and stability, those things are not necessarily things that are good for you. You might think that they make you smarter, more street smart, but they're not actually good for you. You might have your own view of where you want to be in the future. Your own idea of where you want to be and who you want to be with it's okay he's right there in that fire he's protecting you so trust that he knows you better than you know yourself give up that willpower that that will that 고집. that stubbornness, give that up to God. Stop resisting him in your heart. Let him into that space of decision-making. Let him into that space. Trust him. He's not a threat. He has your best interest in mind. I promise you, whatever burns away, God will fill the hole that that person, that season, that loss leaves behind. Will you,
1: I know this is our
0: last online worship, but will you take this moment to pray with me right now? From wherever you are listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.